Hello, and welcome to episode three of Pharmacological Histories, a series from the MIT Press podcast in which I interview authors about the social, cultural, and political histories of drug use. In the first episode, I spoke to Nancy Campbell about naloxone, the drug that reverses overdoses. Then I spoke to Mikhail Sekaris about the drugs being used to treat leukemia. And in this episode, I was speaking to Bita Mogadam about her book, Ketamine. Publishing in the new year as part of the Essential Knowledge series, this book documents the various uses of ketamine. From its beginnings as an anaesthetic for American forces occupying Vietnam, to recent research into the drug's effect on mental illness via its most well-known use as a recreational drug. Content warning, this conversation will feature discussion of drug use and severe mental illnesses. A lot of the interviews I've done with authors recently, I always tend to find myself talking about things that happened in the late 60s and the 70s. And I think it's really interesting that economically and culturally and technologically, lots of things that happened around that time, we still seem to be living through some of the economic shifts that took place at that point, the changes in the way wars were fought, and the sort of shift towards networked, hyper-fast societies. So I think it's really interesting that kind of ketamine comes out of the Vietnam War or that kind of period of American history, which is which I think is still quite like resonant. So to start off with, could you explain to listeners where ketamine came from and its, and its kind of popular use in the early 70s and how it first became popularized? Sure. So ketamine was synthesized on purpose to serve a useful function, which is to provide a safe anesthetic. So anesthetics were and remain relatively dangerous. If you administer them at high doses, they could be fatal. And they're relatively expensive to use because you often need to be in a surgery room with equipment to be monitoring your heart rate, et cetera, when you receive an anesthetic. Accidentally, a drug named pencyclidine, hence PCP or angel dust, which is a hallucinogen that is, remains in use for recreational purposes, was um, synthesized in the 40s and the drug was found to have an interesting property. It was, it was not really synthesized because people thought that the chemist thought that it would have anesthetic properties. Uh, but when they gave it to um, animals, they realized that it actually calms them down. Then it suggested that it could have uh, anesthetic properties. So PCP went to clinical trials and even was given to a few people, and it worked fine as an anesthetic uh, and it was quite safe in that higher doses were not fatal. But then uh, people essentially came out of PCP anesthesia feeling psychotic. Uh, so it, it was producing long-lasting adverse effects. So it was pulled out of being tried on humans. But the fact that there was an opportunity to have such a drug, a drug that um, produces an immediate and transient anesthetic effect without being dangerous and fatal prompted drug companies to try and synthesize analogs of PCP. And this is how ketamine was essentially synthesized. It was found to act like PCP, but it was much shorter acting. It's essentially like less effective than PCP. So people could be transiently anesthetized without the long-term 
profoundly pro-psychotic effects of PCP. So it uh, went into the market and it just happened that it, it, it was synthesized and it went into the market around the time that the Vietnam War was raging. It's a bloody war and there was a fair amount of need to use an anesthetic in combat. So it became useful. Uh, and another property of ketamine that sort of was noticed was that it also reduced pain. It, it reduces pain perception. Uh, and to this day, it is used in some pain clinics. So it, it very much used, uh, served a really useful purpose in that it could be used by medics to very quickly put individuals under anesthesia safely without the need of being in a, in a, in a surgical suite. Uh, and it also helped reduce pain. So that's, that's essentially how it got started. And its recreational use came very much after that. And it has, it has gone up and down in terms of where it's used, how often it's used. But it, it very much stemmed from the Vietnam era in terms of popularizing its use as, as a recreational drug. Just to pick up on that a little bit as well, in the book, you sort of talk about there was a real drive to synthesize different drugs and specifically lots of different psychoactive drugs. And is that drive, was that drive a kind of strictly military research driven thing? Or where, oh, goodness, where? no. No, 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 not at all. I, I, I mean, not that I know of, uh, okay, but okay. <laughs> no, it was very much, well, it was driven by uh, both people wanting, uh, physicians wanting to actually help patients and also for drug companies, obviously they were driven for, uh, by profit. So, I mean, it's, let's, let's not forget that brain is an organ that could not be working properly all the time. Uh, psychiatric and neurological disorders remain one of the most devastating and most prevalent illnesses. And conditions such as uh, depression, anxiety, bipolar disorder, schizophrenia, these are conditions, these are real illnesses. Uh, they're not, you don't have them because of your uh, poor character. They're real illnesses because parts of the organ brain is not functioning well. So the drive to actually find medication to treat these disorders very much like we are in, you know, in search of medication to, to um, treat symptoms of cancer, if not, or come up with vaccines to deal with a virus. Uh, it's, it's very much a medical search and a research search to find medications that could treat symptoms of, of illnesses. Okay. And again, it, it was not very much about a cure. It, was, it has been about treating symptoms. In medicine, let's not lose sight of the fact that the only thing that we truly cure is a bacterial infection. Everything else, we either transiently stop the progression, like cancer, cancer could always come back, or we are very much uh, tr treating symptoms. Okay. So the, the, the effort was in, in terms of synthesizing drugs that, symptoms of mental uh, and psych psychiatric and neurological disorders started before the war when it was discovered that some drugs could actually influence mood and, and, and affect and melancholy. Now, we had known for thousands of years that drugs do influence this. I mean, many drugs that people had used to influence their mood and affect, such as opiates or, or um, 
uh, nicotine or hallucinogens, they have been in use for thousands of years and commonly used, not simply because people wanted to have fun, but because they did treat symptoms of depression or, or melancholy. So in the, the, the rush or the push to synthesize drugs was very much to, uh, driven by pharmaceutical companies in collaboration with academia to understand not only the symptoms of brain disorders, but also try and treat them better. So current day drugs for treating depression, anxiety, psychosis, they very much stem from the efforts before and after the war uh, to try and synthesize drugs that could influence brain function and behavior. I want to come back to that a little bit later on and sort of question some of the ways in which you're, you're framing mental illness then and ask you about your thoughts on that. But before I do that, I think most people, maybe not most people, well, maybe most people, I think most people will probably be familiar with ketamine as a, as, as a drug that's used recreationally. Um, and I wondered if you could talk to me a little bit about how it went from this kind of medical military context into being such a widely popular drug to take when you're going out, I suppose. So frankly, I don't know how, what the steps were. I don't think anybody knows, except that drugs, people just try drugs that they can try and they can access, I suppose. I don't think that it is a super popular drug, frankly, compared to use of of stimulants or opiates. It is used more extensively in Asian countries, but it is, and it's, I suppose, because it is not associated with uh, bad side effects because it, the, the effect of the drug runs out very quickly. It could be relatively easy to synthesize. That could add to its popularity. There's a fair amount of anecdotal stories and evidence for why it's used. For example, in um, in some Asian countries, it's again, this is all anecdotal evidence that is popular among college kids or, or high school kids because they can experience a high during a short break Whereas, because the effect lasts for 10, 15 minutes or less, uh, whereas with other drugs of abuse, you're not going to get away with uh, a quick high experience during your lunch break. So that, that's, that could be one of the reasons. Uh, but honestly, I don't know why, for example, people are driven to using uh, a drug like ketamine versus uh, amphetamines or versus um, alcohol. Yeah. A lot of times it's due to availability. And so, so it's, it kind of gets popularized and used in Vietnam in the 70s and then also kind of gets picked up as a recreational drug. And then at what point do people start researching its use as an antidepressant? So it, it was actually not really researched specifically as, as an antidepressant until recently. Right. Okay. So it was, it was always, it has always been approved for FDA use uh, since, uh, as an anesthetic, FDA has had it uh, available since its original approval. It is a very common uh, veterinary uh, anesthetic, uh, especially for inducing anesthesia in larger animals, because again, it's very easy to administer it. And then once, you know, for dogs, horses, it's just, it's a perfect anesthetic to induce. It's a perfect drug to use to induce anesthesia, and then you can go to something that is longer lasting. So it had always been approved for use. And it's also obviously still in use 
during conditions where medics need to go into any any uh, situation where they have to put somebody down without access to the equipment that allows them to monitor heart heart rate, et cetera. The studies with it in, in, in human laboratories really began in the 90s to see if we could use it as a model of uh, schizophrenia in humans. So the original studies with PCP in addition to the anesthetic studies where they found you know that okay it's it works well as a as an anesthetic but it produces uh, symptoms of schizophrenia over psychosis in some individuals a lot of that work was published a group of uh, scientists both in the US and in Canada give PCP to healthy humans or there were also a few sadly a few studies in patients with schizophrenia who were given PCP so it was found that PCP profoundly exacerbated symptoms of schizophrenia. And it also, in healthy individuals, produced transient symptoms of schizophrenia for a day or two. So schizophrenia remains a profoundly terrible illness. We don't have good ways of of treating it. So there are a number of researchers who are interested in understanding the illness better, modeling it better so that we can come up with better treatments. So... In the early 90s, then a group of investigators, and which included my colleagues at Yale, started thinking about giving ketamine to healthy individuals to produce transient symptoms of schizophrenia with the, with the idea that, okay, then we could study these individuals, we can study their brain activity, et cetera, to see, to gain a better understanding of what happens in the brain when uh, somebody with schizophrenia is is having these symptoms that ketamine could mimic. The advantage of doing something like that was that you could also have parallel studies in animal laboratories, in that you could then actually record from dopamine, from uh, brain cells and better understand how symptoms are are produced. So that's how it came back to the laboratory, not as an antidepressant, no. but as a well controlled study giving low doses to healthy humans while the healthy humans were being evaluated for how ketamine affects brain function in order to understand symptoms of schizophrenia better. Those studies were pretty useful. Uh, the animal studies also provided a fair amount of really interesting mechanistic studies. They actually have identified drug targets, some of which are you know, being used and, 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 and tested to this day. But it was that group that was giving this to healthy individuals that then also started potentially seeing some lasting changes in mood. And then a few years later, did a very small study giving a dose of ketamine to individuals who were suffering from depression. It was a very small study, and they saw a significant effect. So the, the, the effect of ketamine on depression very much came as an afterthought by the same group of scientists who were using this to model schizophrenia in healthy individuals. And so what's the theory as to why taking low doses of ketamine makes you less depressed? Is it on a kind of uh, really simple level that it's a way for someone to kind of relax and have some kind of sense of catharsis or is it something different? Uh, nothing about the brain is simple. A large number of theories. The nice thing about this is that we could actually, you know, theories are cheap. <laughs> uh, yeah. We can sit here and theorize all day. Um, but the nice thing about 
the current state of affairs is that we can actually go into the laboratory and get data. So most of the theories are backed up with a large amount of, of, of data. So yes, there are, there are different theories. None of them obviously explain exactly why ketamine is doing what it is doing. But I'm hopeful that as these studies progress, we have a better sense of how it works. Interestingly, it works very much like electric shock therapy, ECT, uh, still works really well in individuals. Well, it, it, it continues to work really well in individuals who have treatment-resistant depression. And with, with ECT, you only need one treatment of ECT to relieve symptoms of depression for many weeks, if not months. So it, the fact that one dose of ketamine could potentially reduce symptoms of depression in treatment-resistant patients. Let's just not forget that the, the, the ketamine has been tried in treatment-resistant patients. And these are patients who do not respond to Prozac and other, other modes of therapy. And that their depression, so the depression of individuals who respond really well to drugs like Prozac and at least a third to half of the population, if not more, belong to that group that respond well to, to existing antidepressants. That depression may be entirely different than the depression that ketamine could treat. We don't, we don't know if that's the case or not, but that's one mm. of the theories that's out there, that the mechanisms that are brain mechanisms that are producing depression in somebody who, who responds to a drug to Prozac versus the person who responds to a drug like ketamine could be very different. So yeah. with that in mind, you know, we don't know exactly how it works. There are a large number of theories, but theories hopefully will be backed up by, by data. But the fact that one dose is sufficient to reduce symptoms of depression for several days is quite interesting and does suggest that, you know, something changes that could tap into memory systems because clearly like your brain networks are remembering that, oh, the depression is gone or it's changing for two or three days. So that's one area of, of research that's quite active. It's sort of tapping into uh, memory systems that we know about in the brain. Yeah. I, I, yeah, I was kind of surprised when you mentioned uh, electroshock therapy in the book, just because it, to me, it seems like something that people speak so critically of it that I didn't realize it was still a, a practice. So it is, but I mean, it is in practice and it's really critical to underscore the fact that it, the way it's done now, it's not the way it was done in the last century. It's uh, far more controlled, far more humane, of course. The individuals who are undergoing ECT are those who nothing else is really has worked on them. They are anesthetized when they experience this. And there is a fair amount of research that has gone into optimizing the pattern of current that's applied to the brain. So it's, it's very different, very different than what, you know, you heard about in the 50s and 60s in terms of the mechanisms that are, or in terms of the, the methods that are used. Uh, but it is, you know, it's, it's still in use and it really does help many people, people who are severely depressed and have tried to take their lives. And so it, it's, it, is, it is being used because it is actually saving lives. Okay, that's, that's really interesting. Yeah, that kind of leads me on to another thing I wanted to ask you about. Um, and I guess perhaps this is more of a kind of sociological question, but I would be really interested to hear what you think about it. And I guess what I want you to ask on is to kind of reflect on a, a critique of a certain attitude 
towards anti-depression medication and a kind of medicalized frame for mental illness more broadly. And I suppose the critique is depression and anxiety, as much as they're constituted biologically, they're also constituted politically and socially. Um, you know, if you have a child and you're working in a supermarket below living wage and, you know, you're on a f- flexible contract and you're anxious about paying your bills and you have to work as a cleaner and pick up extra shifts to kind of get it through the month, you know, that would lead a lot of people to being very depressed and anxious. I think the argument is that that's not a biologically produced issue and that, and that mental illness, as much as it should not come with any stigma, should also come with a, it should be repoliticized. And that to treat people with antidepressants, not in all cases, but in a lot of uh, cases, kind of normalizes these problems as as a kind of biological issue when when they're not. And that's an argument that I've heard from, I guess, from a kind of radical psychiatry lineage, who are also, I suppose, critical of things like electroshock therapy. And as someone who's done all this research into a, a drug like ketamine and its effect on people with mental illness problems, I'd be really interested to hear what you think about that conversation and where you stand on those issues? So uh, I stand on those issues as I stand on cancer and heart disease and diabetes. If you're poor, if you don't have access to good food, you have to work so hard that you have no time to exercise. Your chances of having heart disease, having cancer, being a diabetic is much higher. It is much higher. So we do not treat those illnesses differently. So if you are diabetic, obviously you need to be first seeing if a change in lifestyle can actually treat that. Nobody would argue with that. Nobody would argue that, you know, don't have so much sugar and try and have a better diet and see if that helps. So let's compare that to somebody who is severely depressed. If you are severely depressed and your GP, your physician tells you, you know, try and go out for walks, try and get more sleep and see if that helps. Those things are parallel. So they should, changing the environment, changing your lifestyle in both cases could influence the outcome of the illness. But if you have no choice, if all you can afford to eat is, is, cheap food that is not high protein, not a lot of good vegetables, or if you don't have the kind of job that allows you to go outside and walk, then are you, should you just sit there and be miserable and be depressed or die of diabetes because you should be denied insulin uh, because you could in fact reduce the symptoms of your, your diabetes with eating more vegetables? I mean, are you going to say that to someone who is diabetic, cannot afford better food, cannot afford to go for walks and say, okay, we're not going to give you insulin because you have this other choice of changing your lifestyle. So what I, what I really hope that people do is treat brain illnesses like we treat other illnesses. There is a huge environmental factor in all of them. Very few illnesses are purely genetic. Um, so environment plays a great role in any of these. Uh, and so the same applies to anxiety, depression, that applies to cancer and, and heart disease and, and diabetes. But we need to be conscious of the fact that we should not be 
applying different standards by making people feel even worse because they don't have a real disease like diabetes and they have imaginary disease called depression. Depression is not an imaginary disease and the organ brain is not functioning well. And can you deal with some of the symptoms by changes in lifestyle? In many cases, yes, yes. But, you know, we need to be conscious of the fact that there are times that medications that we have developed can help people. Yeah, thank you for reflecting on that. I think you've answered that really well. So I appreciate that. There was one last thing, actually, I wanted to ask you that I was really looking forward to ask you, actually, is if you could explain to people what a K-hole is and what, uh, and you know, what's happening to the body when you go into a K-hole, because I think ketamine as a recreational drug has a really strong association with that image or with that kind of event. But I would imagine most people don't really know what's happening to the body when someone is going through that. And I was wondering if you could shed some light on that for me. So I have to uh, issue a disclaimer that I have never taken ketamine. So it's, this is not based on personal experience. It's only based on what I have read, uh, what, I, what I have been ho- uh, told. Uh, but K-hole, based on, again, uh, secondary knowledge, not personal experience, <laughs> is an apparent state that when you take a higher doses of ketamine that are not quite anesthetic yet, but the high enough to lower than anesthetic, but higher than the doses that individuals may take for, for, to, for more pleasant dissociative high, provides a state where uh, your awareness of the world around you and your control over your own body becomes very impaired. So you essentially feel completely dissociated from the world around you as if you don't exist in this world. That slang was provided for this because it could be profoundly scary and aversive to some people. Yeah. If I could push you, could you sort of explain in layman's terms kind of a little bit about what's happening in how your brain functions? You know, why do you feel so dissociated from your body? And what is it about the drug that's giving that experience? Yeah, so ketamine blocks a protein or a receptor in the brain that is responsible for how many of your nerve cells or neurons interact. It's neurotransfer glutamate that uh, a lot of the, the, the nerve cells that go from your brain all the way to your spinal cord use this neurotransmitter to communicate. So ketamine blocks that the actions of that neurotransmitter. At low doses, it's just a mild dissociation. Uh, but at high doses, it could be quite profound. So essentially, your brain is dissociating from the information it gets from the outside because you know the information you get from the outside really influence how you perceive things. I'm looking at a tree right now because my uh, visual system sees it, commands to my brain that you know this is a tree. So I I I, I see it because the sensory systems are working to to kind of transmit that information. So ketamine at high doses could block all of that transmission so that I don't get the right kind of perception from the outside. Information from the outside is not really being processed appropriately by by the brain, which is why slightly higher doses, then they put you in a complete state of anesthesia. But that sort of separation from from the outside and inside is is what ketamine does. It also adds to, it contributes to what why ketamine could be fatal because people who are on ketamine, they just don't sense the temperature and other things that could, could 
signal you to get out of a dangerous situation. So people have frozen to death because they're on ketamine, they don't appreciate how cold they are, or they've drowned in their bathtub because the usual autonomic systems you have that signal you that, oh my God, I'm not breathing, I need to get out of water. Uh, those things just essentially shut down. So you don't even sense that you may be suffocating. Right. Well, okay. Great. Thanks for that. The only last thing I'm, I'm going to ask you before we finish is not really a proper question, but Throughout the entire course of writing a book about ketamine, were you ever curious to try it? <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, no. And I, <laughs> I, I tell you what, it's 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 um, if I'm given a chance to actually properly take it in a clinical trial, as if they need control subjects, you know, at uh, my age, uh, yes, I would. But I I am a very strange person in terms of like being interested in trying new things i sort of get my uh the need to risk by like doing outdoorsy things or uh being a scientist who needs to get grants and papers for a living so that's that's how i I, uh take my risk dangerous hikes for my age and and things like that versus trying new drugs different drugs so no, I, I haven't. And I, you know, I'm not opposed to taking it for a clinical trial, but it's not the sort of thing that I would go and seek to take. Yeah. You know, okay. I think I think along the same lines, other drugs that are coming in that are showing a better profile in treating anxiety and depression, such as psilocybin, the impact of those drugs on brain is far more interesting than, than ketamine. Okay. Well, thank you for answering that. And um, thank you uh, for speaking to me today. It's been been really interesting and I really appreciate you uh, sharing the time with me. Sure, my pleasure. Thanks for doing this. You're more than welcome. Thank you for listening to this episode of Pharmacological Histories from the MIT Press Podcast. Thank you to Kristen Galano for providing the soundtrack and to Samantha Doyle who edits and mixes the podcast together. If you enjoyed this episode and would like to help us grow our audience, Please do share the podcast with other people who might like it. Subscribe, like, and rate the podcast on whatever medium you're using. If you have any thoughts or suggestions for the podcast, please feel free to reach out via info at mitpress.org.uk.